0: Well, good morning, Desert Springs Church. It is good to see you. Yeah. So real quick, before we get started proper, a short public service announcement. It seems like all of you got the email. But due to the changing in the latest public health order that came out Friday, we are not going to require masks in our gatherings anymore. (laughs) grace. <laughs> Big Pete is back just in time. So, welcome back, Pete. Paul, I'm sorry. Goodness, ruin that. Big Paul. Oh, I should just start over. Should we just start the service over? Can we? No? Okay. We can't do that anymore. So, we're not requiring masks, but we do ask individuals and families To continue to follow the state guidelines for those who are more at risk. So, what does that mean for our gatherings? It means that we continue to expect you and expect you to honor the Lord and care for one another in all of this. It means that it will be somewhat self governed because we are not going to violate your HIPAA rights and and come up and ask for your personal and private health history. it means that the youth room will still be designated for distancing and for mask. and we would ask that if, you, if you're more comfortable in there, and if you do use that room, to please wear a mask. And it means that we will continue to extend mercy and grace to one another, and not suspicion. Let me say that again. We will extend mercy and grace to one another, and not suspicion. Amen. Let us assume the best and assume that all those around you are seeking to honor the Lord in this just as much as you are, and then we can worship together, all right? So enough for me, let's hear from God, let's stand and read his word together from Psalm 89. Say this with me. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations, for I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you have established your faithfulness. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I have established your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. We will forever sing of his forever love for us before his forever throne. So let's get started. Give to our God immortal
1: praise. Mercy and truth are all His ways. Wonders of grace to Him belong. Repeat His mercies in your song. Yes, give to the Lord His praise. Give to the the Lord Lord of Lord's renown. The King of Kings with glory crowned, His mercies ever shall endure when lords and kings are known no more. Wonders of grace to Shall rain no more oh, when death and sin shall reign no more He came for us He saw that we, we were dead in sin And there His he worked with them His mercies ever shall endure When death and sin it
2: won't no more. Wander the grave.
0: on with power
1: to save from guilt and darkness and the grave. Wonders of grace to him belong. Repeat his mercies in
3: sang a song that was inspired by Psalm 136, where it says, it is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes, for his love endures forever. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I'm Josiah Bellflower. I'm the missions minister here at DSC. Uh, it is so great to see you all. If you are a guest, we are thankful that you have come. Depending on your religious background, you may have a lot of questions from what you see or, and hear. Uh, so we'd encourage you to reach out to us. There's a number of ways. One, you can email us at info at dscabq.com. We'd love to hear from you. Or if you want to talk to someone in person, we'd encourage you to do so. And maybe you don't know anyone. Well, at the conclusion of service, there's going to be some pastors up front, and they would also love to speak to you. Well, I'm excited to tell you that we are four weeks away from Missions Emphasis Week. Missions Emphasis Week is a week that we set aside uh, to celebrate the ways God is using DSE to spread his glory across the globe. Now, we call that M-E-W, or as I prefer, Mew, and that is going to be June 12th to the 19th uh, we're going to have we actually added a day so I know there are not eight days in a week but we added a day because we wanted to have a special Saturday seminar where we're going to hear from the C family that's coming in from North Africa and they want to share with you all the good things God is doing there we're gonna have a Q&A and we're also having Matthew Ellison come and speak for us Uh, He helped DSC establish our mission strategy, and now he goes around the globe helping churches establish their mission strategy. So you'll want to hear from them. You know, one of the things we want to do uh, during our annual Mew, as I call it, is to respond to the good things God is doing by giving. And we want to do it in a strategic way. So last year we raised money for wells in Guatemala, and we were able to build two wells In Guatemala to help alleviate sometimes their uh, their droughts. Well, this year we're going to raise ten thousand dollars to translate Paul Tripp's New Morning Mercies. We're one of our missionaries was talking with a pastor in in the country, and he said there were no good gospel devotionals in their dialect for him to be able to share with his congregation. And so we want to help uh, fix that problem. So we're going to be helping raise money so we can translate that book and it'll be available to them free in e format and an audiobook format online. So we're going to do that by we're going to have a barbecue fundraiser on Sunday, June 13th. And then we're going to also have our annual missions auction. Uh, last year, the good thing about COVID is we learned that online auctions are actually really nice, so we're going to do online and in person. So we want to encourage you to come and check out uh, the auction in the West Wing, but we're going to also have it available for whoever's tuning in online. I don't know where my camera is, but whoever, whichever one it is, we're wanting you to still participate in us helping translate uh, this book into the North African dialect. We still need items to auction off, so we encourage you to reach out to us and let us know if you have some items in the past. People have given gift certificates for babysitting. Uh, They've given uh, their homes for vacation homes uh, for a week. They've done homemade jewelry, whatever you can think of to help us raise funds. We'd encourage you to do that. and You can also email missions at dseabq.com. Well, I get really excited talking about all the ways God is using our church to spread God's glory broader, and we also want God to spread his glory deeper in our own hearts and in this church. So let's pray that God do that during this service. God, we praise you for your steadfast love. We praise you for your work in helping us spread your glory to North Africa We thank you for those two missionaries' families that have been faithful to your call and have shared the gospel with unbelieving Muslims. They've uh, discipled new believers, and they've helped establish a church there. Lord, we just pray for blessings for them. We pray for gospel boldness and open ears and open doors for your gospel. We thank you for your work in Guatemala and allowing us to be a part of that. We praise you so much for saving our ACHI partners. And we pray for blessings for them. We thank you for our medical team, the water outreach that we've had, the pastoral training. You have been so good to us for allowing us to be a part of your great commission. Lord, we thank you for our Navajo Church partners, Good News Church and Cedar Hill Church. We pray for blessings for those churches. And thank you for our work and allowing us to be a part of it and bringing them wood and Christmas stores and just ongoing fellowship and encouragement. Lord, we praise you for how you have remembered your church in our low estate and rescued us from sin and death. We pray that you would use this service to draw those who are far near. Turn the tears of those who mourn into gladness and use this preaching and our songs to spread your glory broader and deeper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Let us stand and do as we always do every Sunday to rejoice in a Savior come to reconcile sinners like us to our God. Let us rejoice. sought us, to redeem us as a people for himself. Our rock, our cornerstone. Let us sing out. The church your hope. Say amen. Amen. You can be seated.
4: Well, good morning. Good morning. It's so good to see your faces. Um, For those of you who do not know me, my name is Randy Pierce. I'm one of your non-staff elders. Would you join me, please? Would you join me in praying for our adoption ministry? You tell us, Lord, That when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Father, we were at one time under the law, under the law of sin and death, and enslaved to the elemental things of this world. We were unable to free ourselves. We didn't even want to. We all, every one of us, were offspring of the serpent. We were, as your word says, foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to our passions and pleasures. We were hated, and we hated one another. But you, in your rich mercy, and because of the great love with which you loved us, made us alive together with Christ. We were at one time not your people, but now have been adopted into your family, sons and daughters of the living God. We were at one time bereft, having nothing, but now are heirs through God of all that you have created, all that belongs to you. Father, thank you for this adoption ministry to your church. It ministers not just to those who are adopted, not just to families who have adopted, but to all of us. Thank you for this ministry that reminds us of your deep mercy, of your complete redemption, of your great love for us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, that, thank you that we have several families in the process of adopting. Thank you that we've had four families recently expressed interest in adopting. Thank you that we are currently well-funded to support our families. You have greatly blessed us in these things. And yet in the midst of these blessings, Lord, we are aware of changes in the political and cultural landscape in our country. We know that a number of modern, secular philosophies are causing persecution for Christians and Christian organizations committed to biblical principles in the adoption community. Would you, Lord, restrain evil, and that through this persecution, however active it may be, your people would hold God's word as paramount, that we would obediently Live out a religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, a religion that visits orphans and widows and their affliction, a religion that keeps oneself unstained from the world. We are your children, and we ask these things for the
0: sake of your good name. Amen. Let us stand now and sing out as children of God, as a family.
2: Arise, my soul. is blood.
5: Father, on account of Jesus, our sympathetic high priest, our perfect sacrifice, on account of him, we come boldly to your throne of grace to ask for help in time of need. Lord, we ask that you would lift up the head of the downcast, and you would strengthen the hands of the weak, and you would affix the gaze of those of us who are distracted, you would save those who are not yet saved. We pray you do all this through your word today. We pray you do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Do it for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You could be seated. And if you have a Bible with you this morning, we are in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, as we continue to work our way through this great letter from Paul to the Galatians, and today our study of Galatians leads us to think about the gospel family. Gospel family. And that phrase, gospel family, might, if other sermon titles in this series haven't already, might lead some to wonder Are we just putting gospel in front of anything and everything these days? Will we one day talk about gospel pancakes and gospel soccer and what's what's next? Yes, Yes, this series has used titles like gospel union and gospel promise and gospel faith and gospel confrontation. Well, the gospel might be used too much or about too many things today and that itself is worth thinking about you hear the phrase gospel issue these days it's a gospel issue some say about this or that thing maybe you've heard it maybe you've said it yourself fill in the blank is a gospel issue exclamation point some say penal substitution is a gospel issue And of course it is. Some say, by grace alone, through faith alone, it's a gospel issue. And I agree. Some say, racism or opposition to racism is a gospel issue, or adoption is a gospel issue, or care for the poor. Or even the proper roles for men and women and husbands and wives. It's a gospel issue, some say. What is a gospel issue? Whether something is or is not a gospel issue is no small matter because the gospel is of utmost importance. It is possible to have too broad an outlook on the gospel, that's problematic. If the gospel is everything, then the gospel is really nothing. The gospel has to be something. Good news. Good news about what? Good news how? But to have too narrow an outlook on the gospel is also problematic, as we'll see today. Galatians is part of the Bible that not only helps us with clarity about the necessary ingredients of the gospel, but it also doesn't shy away from the proper implications of the gospel. If you're taking notes, you might want to write down those two I words, ingredients and implications of the gospel. You can test these out in Galatians 2, verse 14, a passage we looked at a while ago. Let me just refer to it again and use it as a test case. In Galatians 2, verse 14, Paul confronted Peter for having conduct that was not in step with the truth of the gospel. What was Peter doing? Well, when he was alone with Gentile Christians, he ate with them. He accepted them. He was close with them. But when certain Jews came to town, Peter pretended to not know these Jewish Christians and to not eat with them. And Paul said that that conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now that doesn't mean that the gospel is this law that we make sure we eat with everyone who is a Christian, regardless of race or background. The gospel is not, eat with them and be saved. But it's somehow related to the gospel. Paul uses the word gospel. There is conduct that is in step with the gospel, conduct that is not in step with the gospel. There are gospel ingredients which must be believed in order to be saved, and there are gospel implications that flow out of that gospel and reach far and wide and are really eternally important. So when someone says, blank is a gospel issue, chances are you need to talk some more to find out what they mean. You might need to listen some more to find out what they have in mind. It could be that they mean that blank is a necessary implication of the gospel, just like Paul did in Galatians 2. And it could be that they have confused those two categories of ingredients and implications, and they have turned the gospel into something else. Now, all that really could have been addressed at any point in this series, but we haven't addressed it yet, and so I thought this week was as good as any to address it. Galatians 4, look down in your Bibles with me. I'll start reading in verse 1 and read to verse 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also... So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slave you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Well, there are two parts to our passage, two unequal halves, verse 1 to 7, and then verses 8 to 11. In the first seven verses, Paul's going to establish the facts, the doctrine. And then in verse 8 and following, he'll move to make the argument for it all. It really drives home his point there, especially in verse 9. Now, I have a few subpoints to suggest under the first half of our passage. And so the first will take uh, the majority of our time. But then we can more quickly get to the point that Paul's driving at uh, in the second half of the passage. For the first half of the passage, we could summarize it like this redeemed from slavery to sonship redeemed from slavery to sonship That's what the first seven verses summarize redeem is a word we find in verse five that's where paul's going that christians have been redeemed to be adopted as sons and daughters but he first has to begin chronologically and logically with slavery it's what we as christians have been redeemed from he'll talk about what we've been redeemed unto but first there's what we're redeemed from let me suggest 3 p words under this heading that'll help us keep track of Paul's line of thought problem path and privileges there's the problem of spiritual slavery and that's where he starts and he starts with an illustration By the way, it's actually the third illustration in close proximity in Galatians that Paul has used for the Mosaic law or the the law of Moses. The other two illustrations were just very brief, one-word metaphors. Chapter 3, verse 22, there he said the law imprisoned everything under sin. And then in verse 24, he said the law was our guardian until the coming of Christ. Chase talked to us about that last week. Now he gives a longer illustration in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. And he says, living under the law is like a child growing up in a wealthy home. This is an illustration apropos, especially for the Jews. It's an illustration about Israel growing up under the law. And under the law, they had promise but not yet fulfillment. And under that certain time of waiting for fulfillment, it was an era of, well, promise and and waiting, but not yet actuality and experience. You see, in ancient Near East cultures, the firstborn son of a family was to inherit the lion's share of the father's wealth. He was the heir apparent, as we say, But as a child, he hadn't yet inherited it all, not in actuality, not in experience. He could walk through the grounds of his father's home and look around and say, one day all this will be mine. And that's true, but it wasn't yet his. In fact, in his experience as a child, he was much like a slave in his father's house. A slave? Well, don't think the worst form of slavery, or else it'll mess with the illustration. Paul doesn't mean that the son of a wealthy landowner was whipped or beaten or, you know, forced into cruel labor. Paul just means that a son, even the firstborn son, had rules to follow, and he had leadership. He was under, as it says in verse 2, guardians and managers at least while he was not yet of age. And again, the point is slavery. That's Paul's point. Don't get lost in the details of uh, child and what it's like and whether we can relate to it or be familiar with the illustration. Paul's main point is slavery. Verse 1, he's no different than a slave. Verse 3, in the same way, when we were children, we were enslaved. Enslaved to what? You see that in verse 3? Enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now what does that phrase mean? Did you notice it's also in verse 9? The weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. A similar phrase is used two times in Colossians 2. Colossians 2.8, Colossians two verse twenty. If you want to look those up later on your own. The scholars spill a ton of ink on what that could mean. Elementary principles. What's that mean to Paul? Some say it just refers to basic things. The ABCs, the rules of life. Some say elementary principles refers to materials of creation. Earth, wind, fire, sky, stars, sea, things physical and tangible. Some connect those physical, tangible things to the deification of those things, especially in Greek culture, right? Their gods were the sea, the sky, the stars, these things. Some connect the phrase elementary principles to things that are demonic or satanic. And Colossians 2 verse 8 seems to tie it to spirits and the worship of angels. Maybe that's right. And another option is that it's somehow related to the Mosaic law. And there's a close connection to the Mosaic law in Colossians 2 verse 20. And maybe also in our passage. So which one of these interpretations is right? Well, I'd actually propose that maybe all or most of them are in Paul's mind, and he uses it differently in different contexts. You have to see how he uses it to see exactly which one he means in each of the four locations. Paul uses this phrase, elementary principles with remarkable flexibility. So just think in these two categories of Jew and Gentile. For the Jew, the Mosaic law could be Elementary principles, the ABCs of God's commands that really did emphasize things physical, like sacrifices and burnt offerings. And for the non-Jew, the elementary principles no doubt related to their idolatry and their worship of things material, things of creation. Again, the main point here is also enslavement. You used to be enslaved to your former way of thinking. We were all enslaved to sin before coming to Christ. The law of the Old Testament was given to prove that to Israel. They're enslaved to sin. That's why they can't fulfill or even obey well this law. Even those without the law, though, they prove their enslavement to sin day in and day out by failing to live up to whatever standard they come up with or have been taught. Enslavement may sound like too harsh a word for sin and for your behavior. And one might say, well, you can call it whatever you want. You call it sin. I call it mistakes. I call it. You know, things bad, maybe, sin, whatever. Call it whatever you want. But I wouldn't call it enslavement because I choose to do it. I freely do it. I like doing it. And you do. But is it possible that it's both? You freely do this. And can you do otherwise? Haven't you felt the bondage to whatever you have decided to commit your life to? If it's exercise, that's your thing. You're in bondage to it. It's a good thing, but you can't get off the treadmill, literally. It's maybe eating a certain way. Maybe it's certain markers of success at work or with your finances. Whatever it is, don't you feel the hamster wheel spinning and spinning and spinning? And yes, you keep stepping you freely keep stepping and yet you can't get off. Don't you feel that? You should. You must. That's really the first step before you can get any hope is recognizing the problem is one so deep we can call it slavery. But then there's a, a second P for us to consider, the path to sonship. Don't you love the but word that follows, starting in verse 3? But, bad news, but, here comes good news. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Well, here is a wonderful two-verse gospel nugget, as I like to call it. A gospel nugget is a passage of scripture in just a verse or two that so succinctly and com- compactly summarizes the basics of the gospel. It describes something of the problem and something of the, the payment that was made in Christ and something of the, the outcome that is ours as a result. These gospel nuggets are worth marking in our Bibles and identifying them. I put G-N in my Bible when I come across a a passage like this. They're worth memorizing so that you have them handy. These are excellent ways to talk to someone who's not yet a Christian about how you become a Christian. You you may not remember all the Romans road, but if you can remember Ephesians 1-7 or here, Galatians 4, 4 and 5... You've got something to say. And remember 1 Peter 3.15, he says we should be ready to make a defense in case anyone asks us of the hope within us. These gospel nuggets are worthy of our careful meditation as Christians. It's what we've come to believe. It's what we have as a result. It's it's what we need to fill our minds with and keep bringing back to our minds For hope and encouragement. So we're going to do that. We're going to meditate on this gospel nugget, just a a phrase at a time. Notice the first phrase, verse 4: But when the fullness of time had come, the fullness of time. This possibly refers to God's strategy of the timing of Jesus' coming. I mean, the Roman world really did make the spread of the gospel conducive. Just think of the Romans' road system that made the spread of the gospel possible in the days of Acts. It was a strategic time, but it was also just a long time coming in what came before the the promises of old had been given long ago and been enlarged and there was even a 400 silent year gap before christ came the end of the old testament and then the beginning of the new 400 years separate those in the fullness of time christ came In the fullness of time is the language of Ephesians 1, verse 10. Or Romans 5, it was at just the right time that Jesus died for us. At the right time, at the fullness of time. Notice this next phrase, God sent forth his son. Sent implies that he was preexistent. He came before. He was before he was born. Sent implies that he came with purpose. That his coming was planned. That there was a plan to execute. This reminds us that salvation begins with God. He initiates. It's not us building our tower of Babel up to him as if we could ever get there. He came to us. In fact, God came to us and God sent his son to us, the divine son, divine and yet distinct from the father. So this passage alludes to what we call as Christians the trinity. God is a trinity. Father, son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, each person fully God and yet distinct god sent forth his son born of a woman so jesus was fully god and fully human he was born under the law that is he was born a jew and he was born under the obligations of the mosaic law and he fulfilled them to a t He was perfectly righteous, and he had to be. That was part of his mission. That's part of why he was sent, because he he was to be a substitute righteousness for us. Substitute obedience. We didn't obey, no one could, but Christ came and he fully obeyed. He did this, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. We've seen that word redeem before in Galatians. It means to purchase freedom from slavery. That's what Jesus came to do, to purchase our freedom from our spiritual slavery. And the payment was nothing less than himself, his life, death. His death in the place of our deserved death. His life given to us as a gift. Second Corinthians 5.21, another gospel nugget says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, had no sin, to be sin for us or to bear sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God in him. Or in this language here, this result. Notice this, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that. Here are gospel implications which are rich and far-reaching. This is what Paul's been driving at, and he finally gets there in verse 5. Adoption. Chase got us started last week by thinking about our spiritual adoption from that single phrase back in chapter 3, verse 26, that we would be called sons, sons. That implies adoption, and now we see it explicitly, which leads to our third P, the privileges of sonship. Verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So here's the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of His Son, He's called here, communicating to us that the Father sent the Son, and then the Son sent the Spirit. They're all in this together, distinct persons, one God. And the Spirit was given to us as Christians, and the Spirit dwells within us as Christians in no small part to confirm and authenticate our adoption and to confirm and authenticate that to us experientially. It's as if the Spirit cries out in our hearts to us that God is our Father, Abba, Father. Abba is just Aramaic for father, by the way. In the original Galatians text, it just has the Aramaic word for father followed by the Greek word for father. So there's no need to translate one of those daddy, which may or may not be too flippant, but just with the word father, there's... Much intimacy and and familial warmth there for us to camp out on and enjoy and fully appreciate. This idea of God as father and we, his children, was hinted at in the Old Testament. And I say hinted at. There are only a few references of God being father in the Old Testament. They're great. They're rich. There are a few references to our adoption Hosea 11 and Ezekiel 16, if you wanted to read two later on. But there are not too many, the references to Father in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there are over 200 references to God as our Father. This is profound and, again, far-reaching Verse 7, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now some want to balk at the gender-specific language of us being sons. Why doesn't it say children of God or sons and daughters? Well, that's a good question. Especially since Paul just said in Galatians 3.28, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, Male or female, all are one in Christ. But to get rid of the son language that comes after loses some of the power of the illustration and the word picture. The historical background actually illuminates the privilege that we all have in Christ in our adoption, whether male or female. In other words, we've already already We've already covered this. In ancient Near East cultures, it was not only sons in general that got the inheritance of the father. It was the firstborn son that got the lion's share of the inheritance. And so to translate it just children or sons and daughters would miss the fact that Paul here is saying that every Christian receives the inheritance like a firstborn son like we were Jesus himself. Adoption means, well, so many things. It means a father's initiation of relationship, him pursuing that relationship, even at great expense. Adoption means a new family, a new father, a new name, a new identity. It means a new relationship. You see that so well in verse 9 of our passage. You have come to know God, or rather to be known by him. I mean, it's one thing to say, I know some famous man or woman. But then to say, they know me. Or even better, to be at a crowded party and that famous person to initiate and for them to call you out and for them to call you by name. Well, they really know you. And that would feel special in the moment. And infinitely more so, it should be, with God who knows us. We know Him. More importantly, He knows us. There's intimacy there. All this is not because we've earned it. Not because we've been good enough. It's the Father's initiation. It's his declaration of love and purposes to do us good. And that is unchanging. That is irreversible. Our God doesn't adopt and then say, this isn't working out. He doesn't invite you to the table and then say, sorry, this is the last meal. He's with us to the end. Jesus is our brother. Hebrews says that he's not ashamed to call us brothers. That's astounding. Further astounding is that we will one day reign with him and have his inheritance. That's unthinkable. The Westminster Confession of Faith from the 17th century, that, that has a paragraph on adoption that summarizes all this so well. It says, Those who are justified are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. They have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption to inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. I ask you, Christian, when's the last time you thought decently and long about adoption, about your childlike status, before the Father who is so, so gracious. I mean, this is so far-reaching. This doctrine just fills the corners of the Christian life if we let it. Think of how this affects how we pray. We pray to a Father. Jesus taught us this. Pray to your Father in heaven. We pray to a Father who wants to hear from us. He doesn't really care that we don't pray so well, that we haven't been so consistent. He doesn't want you to somehow get better and then start talking to Him. He wants you to just start talking, even starting with all the shortcomings, all the failings. Think of how this affects reading our Bibles. This book is not some ancient, dusty text, but it it really is living. It still speaks today. God speaks afresh through this living word, and he speaks to us personally. Perhaps it's been overused or misused sometimes that this is God's love letter to you, but there's something about that. There's something true to that. Think of how our adoption relates to... God is our provider of our needs. And how our adoption relates to our experience of trials. He's our Father. He's not doing us harm. He'll give us what we need. He won't hurt us. Even in our trials. Even in our chastisement. Just like parents discipline their children and direct them. He's good. Just like parents don't give their kids everything they ask for. So God doesn't give you what you ask for. He knows better than you. Think of how adoption should change how we view sin. In every family, there are household rules. There are family traits. There are things we just don't do in this house. And so it is with God's family. There are things that are like him, things that he wants of us. We shouldn't want those things outside of our family traits that are hopefully growing in us more each day. Think of how the doctrine of adoption helps us to view others as important. Think of how it relates to the church. We're we're family. We're a, a, a diverse, awkward Unified family having this one thing in common, that God is our Father, that Jesus is our Savior and brother, and that the Holy Spirit is within each of our hearts. Whatever else we have not in common, we have the most important thing in common. We're fellow adoptees of the gracious Father. Think of how it even... Changes the way we view ourselves, where we no longer need to assess ourselves according to our abilities or our accomplishments or what others think of us. We can say, you know what? This is what God thinks of me. This is what He said. I wouldn't have come up with it myself. I wouldn't have set His love upon me if I were Him, but He did. The most important thing about us is not what we have achieved or how we feel or what others say about us, but what God has said about us. We are accepted, and that will not change. Think of how this affects literal, physical adoption. Randy prayed for our adoption ministry earlier, and rightly so. Like marriage, which is a beautiful powerful picture of the gospel so adoption is a beautiful and powerful picture our family never adopted but many in this church have and I have been blessed by observing their adoption I've been blessed by hearing stories of kids without mother or father being taken in as their own and raised for eighteen or however many years ahead to the glory of God. if we had the time today we would you know if we if this were a weekend retreat, let's say we could have story after story testimony after testimony of those who have adopted, telling us just how they've experienced the gospel lived out in their home in a unique and special way. It would have many of us thinking, well, maybe I should do that. Or maybe I should support adoption more than I have. It's a beautiful picture. I have to say as well, think of how adoption relates to how we witness to non-Christians. We aren't just holding out the possibility that they would get out of hell or that they'd go to heaven. It's that they would be reconciled with God intimately, perfectly, forever, with us, in a family. We hold out to you, if you're not yet a Christian, not just the possibility of avoiding hell or going to heaven, though that's good news, and that's important. We hold out to you a family. Again, a messy, dysfunctional, diverse family which has God as Father in common, the Holy Spirit within our hearts, and Jesus as our Savior and brother. We hold out to you reconciliation with God. We hold out to you the possibility of being in His family. Oh, I pray today you would hear that. And something, perhaps for the first time, by God's grace, would be stirred in your heart to say, that's it, I'm in, I want in. Well, for those who have believed those who do call God as father for them specifically Paul turns in this second unequal half in verses 8 and following a section that we could call returning to slavery question mark you see having been redeemed from slavery to sonship Paul says are you now returning to slavery The key is in the middle of verse 9. How can you turn back again? What comes before that question in verses 8 and 9 really just summarizes what Paul has said already in verses 1 to 7. You didn't know God. You were enslaved to the things that you were committed to back then. But now you have come to know God, rather be known by God. In light of that... How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you apparently want to be once more? Remember that the Galatians were in danger of adding regulations of the law of Moses to the gospel. But not only have those laws been fulfilled and done away with in Christ... But trusting in those laws cancels out for salvation, cancels out the gospel. These Galatians had been told by false teachers that the, the facts of the gospel are, sure, needed, important, yes. Believe them, you should. But there are certain behaviors that must also be part of the gospel equation, and they are ingredients not implications, ingredients. And Paul says that's a different gospel. Another gospel, no gospel at all. Remember, he's been saying there are two systems. We're born into and used to a certain system where we, we try. All world religions teach a version of this system you, you gotta try, you gotta earn, you gotta work. you you gotta you gotta do what you can do. God helps those who help themselves. But that's not in the Bible. That's the wrong system. The other system is to give up on worthless and weak elementary principles of the world, in whatever form or fashion you have before, whatever, version of worthless elementary principles you used to cling to you have to give up on them to cling to christ and him alone and you must keep clinging to him and him alone all your days that's why paul was worried with what he said in verse 10 that the galatians observe days and months and seasons and years now this refers to the jewish calendar and Things like the Sabbath and new moons and the feasts. It's not all bad if someone wants to give some observance to Old Testament calendar and feasts. Paul can be found doing that in the book of Acts, even after his conversion. Romans 14, Paul says, One guy regards one day as special, another regards every day the same. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. The concern here is that apparently the Galatians were beginning to think that observance of the Jewish calendar is integral to salvation, it's one of the ingredients for salvation. They were depending on it, apparently. They were commending it to God as part of the basis for their salvation. Had they died that night and God said, Why should I let you into heaven? They probably would have said something along the lines of, Well, Jesus died for me, and I got circumcised, and I'm doing pretty good doing all the feasts. That's what Paul was worried about. And worried he was. That's why in verse 11 he says one of his most alarming statements in Galatians. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I'm afraid of the possibility that you're not a Christian. Now a true Christian cannot lose their salvation. But it is possible for professing Christians to one day prove that they never really had the real deal to begin with. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. As with these Galatians, they had believed the gospel. They were baptized. They did form various churches. But Paul is concerned because you can't dabble in trusting in things that you do with your hands. Things that you contribute to the gospel equation. You can't dabble in that and cling to a gospel which is Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. You see, sticking to the gospel is a gospel issue. Not trusting in our own works is a gospel issue. Observance of Old Testament laws or not, that can be a gospel issue if one puts that in the gospel ingredients necessary for salvation. Again, we have to rightly distinguish between gospel ingredients and gospel implications. Brothers and sisters, do not add to the basic ingredients of the gospel or it is no other, it's no gospel at all. But do not overlook or minimize or downplay any of the massively important and far-reaching gospel implications like your adoption. Some gospel implications have to do with Results, rewards, benefits that we have as, a, as part of our status in the gospel. And part of those gospel implications really do have to do with responsibilities, requirements, even obligations. So it is with adoption. Adoption is mostly benefit, privilege, comfort, and it also implies some responsibility doesn't it we're now in his family we're not in the old family don't go back to the old ways how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world remember that they were weak Remember that they were worthless. Remember that they enslaved. Why would you go back to those old ways? You've been freed. You've been adopted. And don't abandon your adoption for that crap. That's what it is. Paul has strong words of warning. I fear I may have labored in vain because they had a wrong view of days and years and seasons they trusted in them don't trust in them trust in Christ Christ alone and then live out this beautiful glorious picture of privilege and blessing and status and acceptance as his adopted sons and daughters let's pray Oh, we thank you, Lord, for Paul's clear and stern warning. We pray for all those here who need this warning who may even say now maybe my faith has all been in vain. Maybe mine isn't the real deal. Perhaps right now, Lord, they wouldn't look to themselves to try harder, to do better in this next year, but they would look solely to Christ, perhaps for the first time. We pray, Lord, for those who would be tempted to begin to trust in worthless and weak elementary principles of the world, whether the Old Testament law or some law of our own making. Keep them, Lord. Keep them from it. We pray, Lord, for those who haven't yet come into this family. Perhaps today they would. Save them, Lord. Show them your love in Jesus. Lord, may we as Christians continue to bask in, grow in, and live out the glorious, powerful implications that you are our Father, we are your sons and daughters, and so it shall be forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
0: Let us stand. We have a new song that will help us respond to this truth, help us sing this truth, help guide our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father.
1: Come sons and daughters sing Adopted through the blood
0: God sent
1: His Son redeeming Now the curse has been undone Now the curse has been undone Once slaves Once slaves to sin and captive Under the law we stood now faith has come and acted, our freedom has been secured, our freedom has been secured. Heirs, Heirs of the promise we will sing. and his son redeeming. Now the curse has been undone.
5: Now the curse has been undone. Amen. Amen. I wonder if you can sing that and it's true of you. I wonder if you can sing that and you know that that's not just facts, that's experience. That's what you know for yourself. And if you're not there yet, then maybe facts are kind of what you need to at least deal with first. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. What part of that are you hung up on? I'd love to talk with you if afterwards you have some questions about that or if you're unclear about what facts we need to believe in order to be saved and made right with God. But, but please know is not just facts. It's relationship, right? It's unto adoption. There's things bigger than certain beliefs or certain behaviors. This is a whole new reality encompassing all of life. And we invite you in. Brothers and sisters, our Christian life is not just facts, it is not just duty, it is relationship. God is our Father. That changes everything that we could possibly face tomorrow or the next day or the next. He's with us. He'll do us good. He'll keep us. That's the word that's used at the end of Jude, and I close with this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy... To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to him be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. You're dismissed.